And we are live. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the True Christian Podcast. It's the Monday night episode. I'm back with JD, who we missed last episode. And we also have a new face here. Oh, I'm always backwards on the camera. A new face here. Uh, Nick, is it? We're going to call you Nick tonight. Uh, Nico, what, what do you want to go Nick, by? Nick's tonight? good. Nick's good. We'll go with Nick. We'll go with Nick. This is Nick, our Orthodox brother right here. As we've been uh, alluding to uh, in previous episodes, that we will be bringing on someone of the Orthodox faith. Um, but yeah, what's going on, guys? Before we dive into it, just normal greetings. Yeah, well, good, good on my side. Good to see your faces. Good to see Nick's Orthodox beard is is in place and ready for. If he action. didn't have the beard, it would be fake. I wouldn't even trust. Yeah, him, then I'd be like, well, what's so Orthodox about this dude? Anyway, <laughs> so so really, really good to have Nick here. For those of you who don't know Nick. Um, He's going to give you your, his handle right now on TikTok, but he's got really, really good videos to go and check out. He makes beautiful arguments. Uh, he stays away from the circular, you know, people that come with, with the circular definitions. He gets to the point of what he's making with scripture. So he's an awesome brother in the faith. And uh, we all learn a lot from him over on Discord. So to everybody that wants to learn more from Nick um, or about what Nick believes, He's, he's also on our Discord server, so it's a blessing, absolute blessing. Welcome, Nick. Thanks, JD. I appreciate it. And thanks to Mike for having me on. Hey, uh, so basically, and all that stuff, we're just going to have a nice little conversation here, as, as Mike's going to explain. But I just want to let everybody know, I'm pretty much approachable the entire time. So if you contact me on Discord, you hit me up on TikTok at St. Nicholas on, Dick, on TikTok. Um, you want to talk about something, I'm all good with it. Uh, the only thing is, as JD alluded to earlier, like if your arguments, like if you have reasoning for what you believe, I'm all about it. But if you're just going to make bad arguments, that's where we get into trouble. So if you if you come at me on TikTok, I'm I'm kind of a different mode than I am on here or on Discord. But if you just want to come and hang and chill and talk out, Discord's a great place to do that. Amen. Yeah, and uh, as he said, tonight is not a debate. As we did, I think it was a week and a half ago, um, we had our brother uh, Drew on, who was uh, from the Calvinist uh, you know, faith, and we were having a dialogue and finding common ground. And likewise, tonight's goal is to have dialogue and find common ground, so that way it's not just immediately, as many of you have seen probably, the normal conversation between a Protestant and an Orthodox is, uh, there's no salvation for you. There's no salvation for you. You're a heretic. You're a heretic and head bumping. Um, we want to avoid that and instead have fellowship because our common ground is in Christ. We both, uh, well, all three of us believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. We believe in Amen. the Holy Trinity. We believe that the word of God is inspired and God breathed. We believe that, you know, um, you know, God is creator of all, that Jesus was sinless, that he died on the cross, that he rose three days later. Like we believe in the same core fundamental things. Now, there are some differences and, and we'll get into that. But I just want to ask everybody in the comment section, one, save your questions. We will do a Q&A part. But if we're trying to read questions while we're having a dialogue, it might distract us from where we're going. So if you get questions in your mind that you have for Nick, pen them down to the side. And when we get to the Q&A part, by all means, you can ask those questions. Um, and also, uh, let's be respectful. Um, if we have people that come in that are Orthodox and then we have Protestants in the comment section, take it from us and be respectful to each other. Uh, for yeah. everybody watching on TikTok, as always, you can watch, you can listen. You're not going to be able to see Nick. You're not going to be able to see JD and you can't comment. So if you want to be a part of that conversation, come on over to YouTube. We have people over here. We have a comment section and you can see everything on screen. Uh, if you choose Amen. to stay on TikTok, then stay on TikTok. That's your decision. And 
since JD always reminds me that I forget, go ahead and hit that subscribe button, hit the like button, hit the share button, do all that stuff. I always forget because I trust the Lord. He'll he'll make sure that everything works out properly. Uh, but yeah. let's start it off with the very first question. The very first question of all is, <clears throat> what exactly is Orthodox? And and I don't mean a big picture, but main people think of like, is that Catholic? Is that like Catholic? What Where does the Orthodox Church come from? Where do you guys believe that you started kind of? And like, what exactly is that? So a lot of people think that Orthodoxy is kind of Catholicism. And in a way, we share a thousand years of history. So 1054 is the schism, just to put that out there. And so that's the point at which we split. But we have a thousand years of common ground. Now, in the traditional view of Christianity, there really are five patriarchates to begin with. Everybody's probably heard of Antioch. Then you have Jerusalem, Alexandria. And then after that, basically, you end up in, in the smaller locations on the coast of Asia Minor, which is like where you're going to find like Ephesus and, and the other churches that St. Paul wrote his epistles to. So you have... The Rome being one of those patriarchates, by the way. And then you have these other patriarchates. So essentially the East is considered everything that's East of Rome, which was the majority of Christendom, because if you think about it, that's Jerusalem, Antioch, etc. So a lot of those places ended up giving birth to what we would call orthodoxy. But again, mm -hmm. for the first thousand years, we're the same church. And so... Until the break, you really don't have a way to define a difference between them. And you had the apostles go to all of these locations. And so ultimately, when in the West, because I mean, Mike and I were just talking about this a bit before, most people just haven't heard of Orthodox Christianity. And so mm -hmm. because of that, like when we present and everything, we look like Catholics for the most part. That's the closest <laughs> thing you can identify us with liturgical standard all the other stuff. I mean, the gals in Orthodoxy veil, that's, that's a thing. So a lot of the only place you're ever going to see that in Western Christianity for the most part is in Catholicism. If they do it. I mean, I understand that's kind of a declining practice to a certain degree in Catholicism, not to throw it out there against them. Just saying that it, that's the way that it is. Oh, sorry. We trash Catholics all the time. No, I'm just joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. But here's the question because you brought it up. So the schism happens in, you know, uh, what you said, 1200 or 1054. Yeah. JD's got I'm going to ask you what caused the schism, but first I want to ask you, so do Catholics recognize the Orthodox, like was a part of that or are they like, cause you know, with Protestants, for example, oftentimes you'll hear, uh, you know, you guys, your whole entire religion started in 15, 1540, 1540. I don't know when exactly it was, but in the 1500s, right? It was actually uh, 1520 something. But they think that we started then, so they reject the idea that it was Catholics that broke off, and therefore we don't have any history, right? They believe we started there. Do Catholics at least let you hold that history, or do they do the same thing with well, the Orthodox started then? I'll I'll put it to you this way because you're going to find both camps of thought because there's. There, as far as the actual church goes, they recognize the apostolic lineage of the Orthodox Church. They really? just say that we're not licit or legal. And in fact, many of the Eastern Catholics have similar practices to Orthodoxy. For example, they use our same liturgy, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. So if you went to an, a Byzantine Catholic rite, you would see the exact same liturgy being performed that we perform. 
but they are yeah. still Catholic and give credence to the, the Pope of Rome. Now, because of that being a thing, there are those who will say and follow along with the Catholic Church's lines that, hey, these guys are, are, are schismatic but apostolic brothers. That's yeah. the official position of the church. Now, if you run into Catholics that are, are more of a polemic sense of things, so they're coming against us, you're going to run into more of like, well, yeah, you guys are schismatics and your church started in 1054. So Protestants are not alone in hearing that line. We oftentimes get accused of being started in 1054, although yeah. from a historical aspect, there's really no founding for that. Yeah. Okay. Now, what I mean, exactly caused the schism? So schism, if you actually study it, is a hugely multifaceted thing. Almost all Orthodox will tell you that there were two primary things that ended up happening that caused us to split. Now there's more than that going on, but filioque, which is the idea in the Trinity that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Orthodox are monarchical Trinitarians, so we only believe in procession from the Father. Now that's Amen. origination. And if you uh, have heard JD talking about the Trinity, because I actually watch some of your stuff, you get a lot of what uh, is, is being talked about inside of the Trinity. But obviously yeah. it's a complicated issue. I'm not trying to dive too deep in it. But that yeah. is the difference. We only believe in the procession from the Father. The Catholics believe in the procession from the Father and the Son. Mm. And that actually leads into what ends up being papal supremacy. Because yeah. the Catholic Church essentially asserted that doctrine without an ecumenical council. And mm. because they did that, they said, well, we can do that because we have the Pope of Rome. And the Pope is supreme over all apostolic sees, so he controls everything that you guys do. So, so he tried to pull the power card. <coughs> Absolutely. In, layman in layman's terms, yeah. they tried to bully y'all. Yeah. And, and you yeah. said, no, nah, we're not playing boss. that. You see, guys, yeah. for y'all that don't speak this language, I got you. I translated <laughs> for you right away. So, so, so <laughs> in, in, in short, what ended up happening is four of the patriarchates said, hey, all bishops are equal. And we're all like, you might be first among equals, but we're all equals. And all that that means is we give you honor. We rule our own seas, like our own jurisdictions, if you will. And then the Pope of Rome said, no, I own the whole pie and I decide which one of you guys gets to do things. Yeah. And so that's how you assert the filioque. Now, there were some other accusations that happened back then and some other credences that went into that. Like they used the donation of Constantine, which is a document which backs papal supremacy. But is that they one of the also, forged, uh, forged uh, documents that Catholicism has definitely put forward? <laughs> Sorry. But then you have... They accuse each other of usury. They accuse each other of selling papal seats or, or jurisdictional seats like bishops, priests, etc., of, of doing that for clout and so on and so forth. Yeah. They accused each other of a lot of the same things and how they excommunicated each other. And if we're being perfectly honest, historically, both did happen. The big difference is, is that like if you're the number one guy and you can infallibly control the church – Versus just being a bishop in the Orthodox Church, even if you're a patriarch, the synod can still turn around and strike you down. So your own bishops can come around and say, nah, what you're doing is not correct and, and defrock you. Wow. That's right. insane. Now that we've got that covered, let's get to what I'm sure people. Oh, what were you about to say, J.D.? I was just about to ask. I was just about to say, you know, because um, Nick just touched on the Trinity. And I will, you know, while we've got everyone here, because it is such a big thing on TikTok at the moment. The Orthodox Church 
has got the Trinity right. Unmanipulated. Oh, yeah. They've I mean, got it and, right, and, probably one of the best churches. I'll give the Orthodox yeah. credit on that. When it comes to the Trinity, they've got it down. They've got it down pat. They understand the substance, the the usia, the essence of God. And like Nick already just said, the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. These are not created beings. Um, the and and for anyone who wants to study the Trinity. Um, no one has the Trinity more complete, unmanipulated. Let me put it that way. No one has the Trinity more unmanipulated than the Orthodox Church. And I think this is where I say to a lot of people, when we read the, and this is basically my question to Nick, when it comes to the Nicene Creed, um, you know, um, we see the true God of true God, um, you know, and from from that creed do you guys still hold to that creed i know a lot of people pull out i know a lot of people pull out because of the last line where it says you know the one true church the catholic church um i would just like because you know better than anyone to elaborate for those in the chat that when it mentions the catholic church that isn't talking about the roman catholic church we know today that is not referring to that so that's actually a, a wonderful thing. And I appreciate the question, JD, because that's a misconception that a lot of people have. And I mean, even even Protestants can go back and trace that Catholic, unfortunately, as it as it's been coined, is the capital C Catholics. Now it's all goes to the Roman Catholics, yeah. which in fairness to them, Rome is a jurisdiction. So they do have other forms of Catholicism that are under the pope. So there's Byzantine Catholics and Melkite Catholics, and there's all different jurisdictions under them. But that word comes from the Greek word katholikos, and it literally means universal truth. So these are things that God has established that are universally true, which is what the church is meant to convey. And so I would argue that any three of those branches claim katholikos. They claim Catholic truth because okay. otherwise you're, you, you literally be outing yourself as a false teacher. There's no way to say that because... Since the beginning, the apostles claimed the Catholic truth. And that is actually the whole name of the Orthodox Church is the Eastern Orthodox Catholic Church. And so when we say it in the creed at the end, we're just saying the same thing that we always have believed, which is that the apostles taught Catholicos. It's also anachronistic, just so we can get that out of the way, which means to take something that's new and modern and place it wrongly into the past. Yes. Orthodox and Roman Catholics and all these distinctions didn't exist in the beginning. It's important yeah. that when you study scripture to realize that we didn't even call ourselves Christians. It says that in the scriptures when it's talking about that for the first time in Antioch. So yeah. they were messianic so, Jews or followers of the way. Ready? I'm going to I'm going to blow some people's minds. So only recently has the word Catholic become what it is. So this is an older book, but let me just read this first line to you. There are two main issues that divide Protestant Catholics from Roman Catholics. Both groups claim to be Catholic. That is part of the Apostolic Universal Church of Jesus Christ. So this is an older book. Protestants have never had a problem with the Catholic Church. And in older books, they refer to themselves as Protestant Catholics. Because again, we never claim to start our own religion. It has only been a modern thing where honestly what happens is you have these Protestants that are born Protestant, like the last episode, JD, you weren't there. I don't know if you had a chance to catch up on it, but I talked about how a lot of people are born Protestant, right? They're not Protestant by choice. They're not Protestant because they've decided this is the route I want to go. Like, just like a lot of Catholics are born that born into it and don't really do a lot of digging into it. 
So when they hear Catholic, they think of, ew, that's them. I reject it. I'm nothing like it. But no matter what, the church was the Catholic church, not big C. Again, not big C. But the yeah. beginning church was the universal church. It's the, mm-hmm. the one body. And that's where we all started. And like I think Nick said Amen. it best, if you try to reject that, you're outing yourself saying, I don't want to draw my lineage to the beginning. Because yeah. the beginning still had a point. There was a point. Like if you're looking at lines, it's one point, And then that line, and then the line breaks, right? And everybody's claiming to be the line that goes back to the dot. But no matter what, there's one yeah. point, And that is the Holy Catholic Church. And if it would have been in 2023 when Christ died, we would have wrote the Nicene Creed saying the Holy Universal Church. And you never would have heard the word Catholic. But Greek was the tongue. Greek is how things were written. So that word, uh, Catholicos, is what they use, right? So just wanted to throw it out there um, because Protestants are not foreign to this word. Amen. And then oh. the the other thing I just wanted to add is 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 because a lot of people have asked me this question and I say no they far off uh, but you you'd know more than me the Oriental Orthodox Church how how do how did they fit in and how did they where did so they that, break that's the schism before the schism that happens in the fifth century wow. at the the Council of Chalcedon which is the fourth ecumenical council. And the reason that they break away has to do with uh, what we would call meophysitism or monothelitism. And uh, by the way, just so you guys know, I talk like this all the time. Anybody that's run into me, I'm not trying to overcome you with words. I will explain. And, you know, luckily I got guys that stop me, too. There's one gal in our discord server that's great at it, by the way. And I appreciate that because oftentimes like the jargon that even me, Mike and JD speak about the scriptures and everything like that. There's a lot of context that we're bringing forward already. And so there's going to be the capability to just interact. It's not a desire to leave you behind. But anyway, all that aside, monothelitism, meophysitism essentially have to do with the idea that there's one will in Christ or one nature even. And so obviously that created a problem because Chalcedon kind of solidified that. And so the Oriental Orthodox rejected that. So it's actually the schism before the great schism. And me and Mike were also talking about this earlier. Technically, every single time there's been a council to settle something, there have been there has been a schism because there have been schismatics. For example, at the Council of Nicaea, when Arius is anathematized, which means excommunicated or thrown out, when that ends up happening, there were still Arian Christians and they left. So they would have been schismatics. And some of them continue to practice the Aryan Christian faith, if you will. Yeah, and you Obviously, can find them on TikTok today. Yeah, absolutely. Can. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely can. Yeah, and so that's, that's an important thing to, to note too. There is such a thing as Orthodox Christianity, and you'll read it in your books of any of the, the Protestant scholars. They'll call it Orthodox Christianity. But what they mean is little O Orthodox. It's referring to the mainstay truth yeah again has common meaning to it like it's an orthodox thing i believe i'm an orthodox christian based on the little low here right yeah and so those those, that's a little important distinction to remember when you guys are going around talking about this big c catholics are the roman catholic church little c catholics is everybody that actually complies to the catholic truth that's inside passed down from the apostles Little O Orthodox is that same thing. It's saying that's the correct version of Christianity. Big O Orthodox is referring to the Eastern Orthodox Church 
or possibly the Oriental Orthodox in that case. But yeah, yeah JD, that's that's when they broke off. It was actually a schism before the schism. Okay. And that's I, the, just, I wasn't sure if it was a before or after thing, you know, mm -hmm. and a lot of people are asking, I'm like, look, I haven't, I haven't gone because let's be honest, if you're going to study church history to study all of church history is, <laughs> is, is something insane. So when, when we get allocated, you know, obviously you get allocated your curriculum and this is the route you take and they take you through obviously a lot of the Orthodox and, and, and this is where I say no one, my understanding of the triune God of scripture was really solidified by Orthodox teachings and by the creeds written, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. These are so essential to the Christian today, whether you are Orthodox or not Orthodox. But in, in the Nicene Creed, we see everything that the Apostles, Peter, Paul, James, everyone before them, what they held to and why the need for the creed was introduced. I think a lot of people don't understand why Why did the creed come into play? What was the need for the creed? I mean, that's, yeah, creeds come into play because of heresies. Same thing with most of the... Uh, so, guys, a little, uh, little backtracking here. When you hear words like ecumenical councils, right? This is a council of uh, church patriarchs coming together and and defining things. So just to do this really dummy style, you had a man who's uh, that came around Nestorian, right? Who was pushing back to the idea that Christ was like us, right? So it, they, he didn't believe that Mary actually gave birth to God. It was just this flesh. And then, you know, God rested in him, but there wasn't the hypostatic union, which I keep, I can't avoid these words. Um, <laughs> but my point is, so what happens is some heretic will come around usually and the people, will, the, the patriarchs will come together and say, here's the heresy. Here's what we need to define so that people understand that this heresy is bad. And the church yeah. fathers will come together and say, okay, we believe this. And they'll announce it. It would be just like if a, a council came together today and said, okay, we need to make sure everybody knows, although this has happened already, that Jesus is not the father, right? That, that a, a, an ecumenical council would come into play and they would define it and, and say, this is the truth, which again has already happened because the Trinity has been defined a long time ago. But that's what hypostatic, I mean, hypostatic, that's what an ecumenical council is. Let's, let's leave church history alone because it, it, that would take a lot of you guys aren't there yet. Here's what I will say before we leave that. And we start talking about what you guys believe when it comes to, you know, soteriology, which is a word that means how to be saved, how salvation works. Um, I will say this one thing. If you love God and you love Christianity, but you refuse to study church history, I have a question for you. Why? And the reason yeah. I say that is because we put so much effort into studying things that we care about. And if church history isn't something you care about, then I don't I don't know where you stand. And, and I'm not saying you have to know it all. I'm not saying you have to study it all. But we should all be wanting to know what the men before us did, what the men and women who love Jesus did before us and how we got to where we're at today. Because yeah. at the end of the day, the reason we all have a Bible today is because of, because of the things that happened in church history. 500 years ago, not everybody had a Bible. In fact, we are part of the small, the very, very small minority of Christian human beings to have access to all the scriptures in human history. Yeah very small group of humans that have ever existed and we have access to it. Well, why? Because of the church history. The Trinity is so well-defined. Why? Because of church history. Like these things that 
are easy for you to understand today is because of church history. So I just highly recommend it that you guys take some time, get some easy to read books and just start looking into it a little bit and understanding why do you have the Bible today? Why, how did they used to worship? It would be beneficial to you. But let's go ahead and let's get to the stuff that these guys might be able to understand a little bit better. Um, Before so, you do that, Mike, I got one more positive for you just, okay. just because this is such a big thing for me. But <laughs> you guys take this for what it is. But Hebrews 13, 7 says this. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Amen. I mean, Amen. the whole entire faith chapter of Hebrews is about looking back at the cloud of witnesses. And those cloud of witnesses didn't stop then. We have cloud of witnesses. We have Amen. people that have come before us that have died for the faith. And they and God stayed true to them. So, yeah, I agree 100%. Great reference on yeah. Hebrews there. Um, Amen. The question that I think a lot of people are going to want to know, would you, do the Orthodox consider Protestants to be, here's a two-part question, to be a real church and to be saved? Well, I mean, we're going to go back into that, that complicated answer situation here because there is a doctrine within the church that almost exactly represents, and I, I know presenting this is going to be controversial, just bear with me here. There is no salvation outside of the church. That is a doctrine inside of the Orthodox Church. But let me tell you what it's not. This is not saying that, number one, everybody inside of the Orthodox Church will be saved. And number two, it's not saying that no one outside of the church can be saved. Why mm -hmm. would we not do that? Well, God is God. I have no dictation, nor would the church, on what God is capable of. Yeah. So if you grew up Muslim, for example, in another country, that doctrine does not say, well, you grew up Muslim the entire time. You had very little encounter or capability to become Christian. We believe that you're damned to hell. Yeah. And so that's absolutely not a thing for us. So could Protestants be saved outside of the church? Absolutely. We just are saying that the best opportunity in the Orthodox opinion is to be inside of the Orthodox church. Yeah. As to the first part of that question, Mike, do we consider you guys a church? I'm just going to be honest and straightforward. It's not meant to be polemic. I'm not attacking. We're just having a conversation just so everybody in the comments knows, because I know that these two won't take it that way. But no. And the reason is, is because the parameters of what it is to be a church, in our opinion, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you have to have that unity. And we would really love to see Protestant churches actually come into one stream of thought and like have a really compact orthodoxy. Yeah. Well, so real quick, though, sure, maybe not on a whole of Protestantism then, but in denominations, you do have unity. So let's use, you know, uh, um, we were just talking about Reformed recently, and Reformed is actually one that keeps to the liturgy and has a much more formal yeah. hierarchy. So we'll use them. Would because my question is, do you view us as apostates or not a church at all? I would say if you could validly put together a liturgical standard, we would probably think of you more as apostates. But that's another rough term to use because, again, yeah. that means that you knew in the first place. And I yeah. don't know if that's the case for everybody. And Not I mean, so given how how fresh orthodoxy is to the West, there's just not a lot of credence for that. I mean, maybe if you guys like 
if I ran into people and I was like, Hey, I'm an Orthodox Christian. Everybody's like, Oh yeah, you guys are like the Catholics and all like started going off on me. Maybe, maybe then I could say there's apostasy, but I simply don't believe that because most of the time when I tell people I'm an Orthodox Christian here in the West in America, for that matter, I don't get people that tell me like, Hey, yeah, I know exactly what you are and what you believe. I get a lot of people Mm -hmm. like, what is that? And when I say that I'm Orthodox, sometimes I forget that not everybody infers that to Christianity. So they'll be like, you're Jewish. Why are you wearing yeah. a cross? And it's yeah. like, well, no, 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 not not Orthodox Jewish. So Amen. it's just not common enough. And to be honest with you, within Orthodoxy, there's a huge amount of grace for that. Because we we I was going to bring this up earlier, Mike, when you were talking about heretics, we wouldn't openly call many people heretics. The reason being is, is because you have to know it here and know it here and believe it in order to be a heretic. I just yeah. talked about this today on a live stream about how people throw that word heretic out too much because there's a difference between how if that person is misled and believes what they're saying is true, a heretic, a false teacher is someone who knows the truth, rejects the truth and teaches contrary to that. I mean, Apollos wasn't a heretic when uh, uh, Achilla and Priscilla had to pull him to the side and be like, you, you got it, but like, I need, you just got it, you know? And they had to smooth him out a little bit. He wasn't a heretic. Mm. He was just misguided a little bit. And he had the, yeah. he had repentance. He just didn't have the gospel down, right? Um, so, yeah. and, and for people in the comment section that are getting surprised, let me just say this right now. Many Protestant groups would 100% say that Orthodox are not Christian. Like right? before you get offended at, at, at him giving the correct answer of to them, we would be considered not a part of the church. <laughs> so would they to us. So don't forget that. Right. Mm. Uh, sometimes people think of that one way only like, mm. and we're about to get into that in, in here in a second yeah. with soteriology. I mean, I mean, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. I mean, exactly what Nick has said. I just want to, I want to bounce this as well is, is a lot of people don't understand at all what the Orthodox church is at all whatsoever. They've got no idea. And the same question Mike asked, if you, if you haven't studied any church history, then it's definitely something you should do because I, I've definitely, you know, through, through a lot of the reading, um, come to love my Orthodox brothers for, for their commitment. Let's, let's put it that way for their commitment to, to walking the way the apostles walked. And again, there are things we don't agree with, but um, ultimately when it comes to, to history, to how the apostles walk, to keeping with the creeds, to keeping with the order. And, and, and like Nick said, the, the Protestant movement, you've got all these branches. You've got one church that's loud and dark and music and drums and banging, and it's a club. And then you've got the next that isn't. Um, but there isn't really any unity within, you know, within the Protestant movement as as there is in the Orthodox movement. So thanks for that, Nick. Don't don't let it be a stumbling block to you either, because a lot of us are still sorting through it. And the other thing is, like I said, you can be within the Orthodox Church and still be in jeopardy. That absolutely is a thing because it doesn't there's nothing, nothing on this planet that protects you from being assaulted and struggling in as Christ struggled. So at the Amen. end of the day, it doesn't matter if you put on a collar or if you get the, the scepter of a bishop, it wouldn't protect you from any of that. So everybody's going to fight their fight. And so the sad part is, is like, you got to remember too, we're just saying, we believe that this is the best shot 
we're not saying, well, for sure you're condemned. Yeah. And it's an important establishment to that. We would strongly suggest that just like if you're drowning in the ocean, you got the choice between getting into a lifeboat and hanging on to a dinghy. I'm always going to suggest the lifeboat in my opinion, because otherwise I would be unloving <laughs> not to do so. <laughs> Amen. All right. So let's get to the real question that everybody wants to know, because I actually recently learned that we align much more on this than we would think so semantically. Do you guys, what do you guys believe uh, uh, as far as soteriology? What must a man do to be saved? So we view this differently because there's less legalism. And I'm going to make an important stipulation there. When we say legalism, we mean that quite literally. It's not a polemic. It's not an insult. We're not saying, well, you guys are Pharisees because you're legalistic. It's not bad to be legalistic in all things. The rules are the rules for a reason. You have to have that stipulation. Those boundaries are how God provides love to us. Because if he didn't tell us the parameters of how we were supposed to behave, we would have no idea where we were in relation to him at all. And so it's the scale on which we operate. So God loves us so much, he erects boundaries, just like you tell your child not to cross the street in traffic. Amen. But when we think about that stuff, we think of it more, and I've used this analogy with Mike before, of Christ is coming to us on, on the boat, the ark of salvation, and he's coming to pull us out of this water, this depth of sin, and he's reaching out to us. He's not a lawyer in a courtroom attempting to argue on our behalf, to mediate in that same fashion. His mediation is the fact that he's coming to us and trying to yank us out of the pool of sin. And so the way that he ended up doing that was through his incarnation, his death and his resurrection. So we believe in all those things solidly. In fact, a lot of the times we would put uh, an emphasis on the incarnation that not a lot of people understand. God taking mm -hmm. flesh and possessing the flesh is actually changing the nature and the fabric. He's beginning to undo all the perversion that sin has brought into the world just by taking on flesh. Because remember, the presence of something holy cannot be in the presence of something sinful. It's why men couldn't touch the ark without dying. Yeah. And so many of the many people would think of that as a cruel result, but it's actually just a result of the nature of God. Like you wouldn't consider it cruel if someone got crushed by a stone because of gravity and the weight of the stone. You just see that as a consequence. Well, the consequence of being holy, like God is holy, is that he can't interact with sin. So that's why the incarnation is so important, is Christ is building a bridge back for us and coming to save us. And so that's how we think about things that is slightly different, because we don't have quite such a, a legalistic aspect as, as sin is this very like conscious thing. We pray for both of our sins, known and unknown, done in willingness or in ignorance, because you do some things, you sin in some ways without even knowing that you're sinning because yeah. we're not we're not fully capable yet. We're still culpable for all of our sins because we willed to do them in one way or another. But then mm. I think the other thing that's important is just like being outside of the church. This is something that's going to come out multiple times. But something like that doesn't necessarily mean that you did so culpably. You can't automatically just be a heretic just because you had a bad idea. The same way as you can sin on a bad idea, but it doesn't mean that you share the same type of culpability in it. So the reason I'm laughing is because <laughs> me and Nick joke sometimes about how 
an, an, an orthodox answer is never this. It's always this, right? <laughs> Remember, guys, I asked them, what must, what must the man do to be saved? <laughs> so for layman's terms, for the people that... <laughs> <laughs> for the people that were just born. Gospel, like, what, <laughs> help them. Because pro- a lot of Protestants are probably sitting there right now like, did he say anything about, like, believe the gospel or... <laughs> What say like you know what I mean? I I know Jesus saves, and and I heard a lot of what you said, and actually I have a lot to say about what you said. I can't wait till we get to that, but I want you to clarify that what 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 an Orthodox believe as far as what is required for salvation before we get back to the things you were just saying, because then we can have this dialogue. So, believing in the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection are always going to be key. Obviously, for us, that's a big deal. But more than more so than that, it's it's following after Christ. We say a Christian without a cross is no Christian at all. And the whole reason that that's a thing is, is because you have to pick up and follow in the footsteps of the incarnation and death and resurrection of Christ. That's what he wanted from us was to follow after him. And so we say that you do that. Now, it's important clarification. We don't think that you do that just of your own fruition. God gives you the choice and capability and will through his grace. He wills for that to happen first. God is definitely the first one to save. And in fact, when you look at the, there's a, there's an icon of Peter being pulled up out of the water by Christ after he's fallen, after he could no longer pay attention and he's got him by the wrist. The reason that that is, is because it's showing the fact that man is just too enfeebled sometimes to even reach back. If it wasn't for God's grace, we wouldn't be capable of achieving the same things that we achieve now. Anything good's from God. Amen. So just to now, now we'll have a little bit of back and forth on this. So you believe that we're saved by believing and that believing coming to fruition Mm -hmm. would, but the coming to fruition part isn't what saves. In in what, in what sense? Well, so so just to clarify, you are synergist, not a monogist, right? You believe that man cooperates with grace of God. Well, I think I, I think I have the answer for what you're asking more more accurately. So I know what they want to hear and what they basically because you know they're hearing it, and right now a lot of people are thinking, is this works based, right? And so, Ephesians 2 is gonna come in their mind. So I'm trying to get right. you to clarify whether you so, guys believe in any work of a man. It's it's very important to recognize that we do believe that works complete faith. However, what I'm not saying when I say that is is that somehow we can work hard enough to barter with God. Yeah, that is not what I'm saying at all, because at the end of the day, God is the only one that wills to do these things. He has no obligation to humanity. He saves us because he loves us and nothing to do with the, the concept that somehow we work hard enough to earn God's grace. God yeah. gives us his grace and that's what allows us to work. Okay, But we believe that that is absolutely essential, which is the part where we get crossed up. That is absolutely yeah. essential to the completion of your faith. And we're going to phrase that just ever so differently. And Mike just touched on it with monergism and synergism. The reason I wanted to bring that up is because now I'm about to break the wall of semantics to show where we align, even though we disagree on this one, because we do disagree. But you didn't mention this yet, but I'm going to go ahead and bring it up. You mentioned it a little bit with your analogy. Let me see if I can word this properly for people. The reason why I do love the Orthodox Church is what I'm about to explain. 
And many people have asked me, Mike, if you had to choose between Catholic and Orthodox, which way would you go? 100% Orthodox. I'm growing a beard out. I'm rocking some uh, some black robes and I'm killing it. But here's what I do love about the Orthodox is that they're willing to pull, pull back sometimes and say it's a mystery. Unlike with the Catholic Church, they will they try to define everything. Like we have to have a definition of it. We have to be able to explain it. We have to be able to say how it works. And when you do that, it gets muddy because then you're trying to explain things you can't understand and you might, and you add your manly pride into it. So many of you are hearing this and you're thinking, okay, Orthodox believes in a works-based gospel. And that means they also believe you can lose your salvation. However, and I've, I've talked to Nick about this before, so I'm not putting words into his mouth. The uh, understanding of salvation is different between us both. See, for me, I believe that I am sealed today. Romans 5, therefore, since I have been justified by faith, I have peace with God. I am sealed today and I am saved today for the future, for the day of redemption. Yeah. What the Orthodox believes is that salvation doesn't happen until you die and then you're saved. So it's not that you lose your salvation between now and then. And Nick, if I mess this up, please fix it. It's not that you lose your salvation or you earn it. It's that you're on a narrow path to salvation and that if you don't stay on that narrow path, you might not end up in Christ's lifeboat. So it's not about working your way or anything. It's about letting Christ save you and that takes a and there's a path and Christ keeps you on that path. But if you push away from him hard enough, you can take yourself off the path. Yeah, we think of salvation as a lifelong process. And there's a lot of that, that you get some semantic crossover between Protestants and Orthodox, because like you guys talk about the continual effort towards sanctification. We think of sanctification and justification as going hand in hand. And because they, they interchange for us, that, that is what we're moving towards. And we, we call those theoses Mm. and theoses literally means to become godlike. Now, this is not the LDS understanding that we're going to become gods. That's not at all the thing. We're just talking (laughs) about you're going to adopt the image that God gave us in Genesis because we're all his children in the sense that we all have his image. We conformed as as the son. I mean, he's conforming us like his son. And Mm -hmm. no, I'm with you there. 100% understand. I mean, and and, and a lot of of the the Protestant brothers will, will lean on, you know, Philippians 2, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling and taking that in the literal sense that justification and sanctification is, is a hand in hand process. And we are being saved every single day until the day we obtain our salvation. So, yeah, that's well, and you you find that language in scripture as well. You know, I've been Mm. saved. I'm being saved today and I hope to be saved tomorrow. Like it's it's a push towards something else. With your analogy, I think my biggest problem, because I like the analogy, is that if Christ is trying to save me, I can somehow mess up his plans. And my problem there is that I believe Christ saves perfectly. Um, you know, as it says in Philippians, um, he who began a mighty work in you will bring it to completion. Hebrews, it says, you know, he is the founder and perfecter of your faith. And in John six, he says, I'll lose none out of my hand. So if I use that same analogy, if I am in the water and Christ throws me that life raft, once it's on me, I, I don't know how I can break free of that and, and, and be like, well, never mind, you're not saving me. Because even as the icon, uh, icon you mentioned, he grabs you by the wrist. You, it's not hand in hand. I can let go of my hand. No, he's got my wrist. Now I had to reach out to him. I'm not. A, I'm not a Calvinist, right? I do believe all of us have that opportunity to reach out to him. 
But once we reach, I believe that once he grabs that rip my forearm, I can't pull back. I'm not stronger than God, right? And I chose to give him my wrist. But once I chose that, it's on. I'm being saved, whether I like it or not at that point. Um, so that's where I disagree on the, co- co- the only cooperation that I do believe in is I'm lifting my hand up saying, save me. In the first place. Yeah. And, and we would say that that's, that's a reasonable posit in the beginning, but the, the way that we would formulate that God is not actually challenged in his sovereignty is his first and foremost rule from Genesis from before he even created us was that he wanted us to have free will. He wanted a creature that could love him. And so his, his sovereignty isn't challenged in your ability to will to get away from him. So what we're saying is if he grabs you by the wrist and you're sitting down there in the process of being saved and you say, please, I don't want to be here. Let me go. God will not force you to be in heaven. So much so that when we say that you experience the eschaton, the eschaton, the end times is just the fire of God. If you're for him, you experience it as love burning away your sins. If you are against him, it's hell. No, I agree yeah. with you on that and what you just said. And this is where the semantics comes in because you and I have had this conversation before. I believe, though, the thing is, and, and like someone put, talking in the comment section, they're talking about they think that I'm taking away man's free will. And again, they're not listening clearly or maybe I'm not explaining it enough. But for the man who gives up his will, as as Christ taught us, not my will, but your will, Father. And as Paul said, it is, you know, I'm the old man is is nailed upon the cross with Christ. Right. There is no more old man. The old man is gone Mm. for those that are being saved and will be saved. They there's no. And I think we even had this talk about. Would you admit? Would you agree that those who are being truly saved will never lose that salvation? So once saved, always saved in a sense of those being truly saved. And I remember you said, yes, for those being truly saved. Yes. I believe the problem is we fail to realize there are some people who aren't yet grabbed by Christ who might be in the pool. Who, who come to the Christian pool, who mentally, you know, speak about it and whatnot, but they're not actually being saved by Christ because they haven't actually given it to them. They haven't yeah. actually reached up. They tell everybody else I'm reaching up, but yeah. they haven't because they're still holding on to their life. They're still holding on to their briefcases of sin and life, and they can hang out at the pool with us. But until you actually let go and reach up and give up your will, then you won't be saved. But anyone mm. who gives it, I, there's no losing that. And I think that's where the, the essential crux is what you just illustrated is, is like, what is true faith? And that's really where the, the question comes down. How are we defining that qualifier of true? And so that's yeah. where we're going to differ is, is you and I would agree actually on true faith. Cause as you mentioned, your works complete your faith. This is where I get called a workspace gospel guy all the time, right, right. but <laughs> James made it clear too. And actually all of Hebrews, every part of the Hebrews faith chapter is faith. And then you see a work, you know, it says, you know, they believed and then they did this and they believe and they did this and they believed and they did this. Because when you believe, when you have that faith, you will do certain things. And, and I think that that's where we can see true faith. Well, yeah. and and I think that the the credibility that we give towards that is is almost the same, too, because I don't think that you guys wouldn't say that, like, sometimes you may start out with small faith, right? You got that mustard seed faith. You start out with small faith and you continue to do something like say it's even something like prayer in the morning. Like I'm going to pray in the morning. I don't actually feel like this is going to be 
really helpful to me. I don't see how it could be, but I have enough faith that I'm going to start praying in the morning. You start praying in the morning and then God gives the increase and shows you you, the reward of that faith. And so sometimes work can increase your faith as well. That's not oppositional though, because God is still giving the increase. That faith is not rewarded because you worked to get it. It's simply because you showed enough of a desire to want to be there. And then anything good that's achieved is from God in that moment. I would agree with that. Yeah. So we're, we're saying it's hand in hand. The difference is, is that the way that we prescribe those things, like I said, is we're going to get synergism and monergism. I think that really yeah. narrows down to the point of like, we're saying, hey, you can still will to let be let go. And you're saying, got you. It's over. Yes. Yeah. And but again, though, you, uh, the important clarifier, because a lot of people hear that and they think like, oh, so you don't believe that a man has the freedom to let go. And the problem that they fail to realize is that if someone is still and this is, again, what I believe, if someone still is holding on to their own will to where they can let go, then they never actually grabbed. And again, because we see that what Paul makes clear is that when you come to him in truth, because the truth is, I had to say this to someone earlier. um, There's a lot of people that are in every one of our churches that aren't Christians. You can be a part of the faith and not be saved. And what I mean by that is being a part of the faith just means being being a part of the physical covenant, the physical church. Every single church in the world has members that are not indwelt with the Holy Spirit that are not saved. I'm talking about people indwelt with the Holy Spirit and Mm. sealed to the day of redemption, sealed and will never be broken. So that's what I want people to understand is I'm not talking about because I always get that weird. It's always this. This is what they always say. Oh, so once you get saved, I can't reject God. Nobody who is truly saved would ever reject him because someone who's truly saved knows exactly who God is. Yeah. Like, Nick, would you ever freely choose hell? Because you you believe in God. You know who he is and you know what hell is. Is it possible for you to ever freely say, yeah, I want that? Freely? Sure, I believe that, but would I? No. Yeah, you're saying <laughs> I mean, what I know. How, how much of an error would that be on my part? That would be the question. Well, that would I mean, be ridiculous once you truly believe to really say, you know what? I'd rather have the damnation. I actually believe that he is the God that created everything. I feel like only Satan openly chooses that. Everybody else, I believe, is fooled into hell. I, I think also just to clarify that there's a misconception oftentimes that people think because we don't have we don't formulate eternal security or once saved, always saved that somehow that, you know, I think that suddenly I'm going to say a curse word on this podcast and suddenly that's going to create me into such a state where, you know, if if a rock falls from the heavens right now and kills me, then. I'm, I'm just, I'm doomed. I'm headed straight to hell. Yeah, so that's the Catholic view where you actually, you you count up your sins with venial sins. Do you guys believe in venial and mortal sins? We do believe in venial and mortal sins, but the difference is we don't have a book for that because we believe that that's a pastoral issue. You've got yeah. to go and talk to a priest about whether or not that's the case because there are different circumstances. So we don't believe that God universally judges all sins the same as far yeah. as the aspect of like, there might've been a consequence. Did you kill someone with your car? Sure. But was the circumstance of you killing someone with the car racing to save your wife who's bleeding out in the back, having a pregnancy outside of a condition that she should? And that was the condition under which that happened. Does that count for something? Absolutely. Because your intent was not evil. It just so happened that in your mistaken state that that ended up being the case. 
So we wouldn't say that immediately, well, you murdered someone that's a that's a immediately a mortal sin. Well, no, yeah. there's other circumstances. Well, I think the 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 thing that 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 I once got from you know from an ortho, orthodox brother as well was the the Judas tragedy. You know, um, the Orthodox Church recognizes the fact that there are a lot of people walking around in the church today that are like Judas, that that act like a Christian, walk like a Christian, talk like a Christian, but haven't fully surrendered themselves. So the the Judas tragedy, you know, is ultimately something we see. I think the Orthodox Church is just a lot more aware of how to identify those who are, you know, like Judas. Um, and this is where the, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but this is where the the faith is perfected by the works that you do. Faith is perfected by the fruit you bear. Um, and ultimately, if you are not bearing the fruit, if you're not doing those works, then you are more likely to be equated with, with someone with a Judas belief system where you haven't truly believed or you never truly believed or you, whatever the case may be, but they're in, but they're not in. Um, and, I mean, the and, benefits of Christ are attractive to anybody. So just because someone shows up for the benefits of Christ doesn't always mean they're bought in. Because as we talk about all the time, there's lots of people who want all the benefits of Christ with none of the accountability, the hyper grace movement, right? Like, oh, I want all that. You saved in heaven and mansion and gold. And well, I want all that. But they, they're bought in for the wrong reason, right? I mean, Judas was quickly sold for money. And likewise, that people's eyes are set on the riches of heaven and not the kingdom of God, which is what Christ tells us to pursue. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Just you just made me think about that. Yeah, but I mean, think that this is ultimately where where I always I always go. You know, uh, not just OSAS, but OTS ATS. You know, once truly saved, always <laughs> truly saved. You know, OTS ATS. You know, because because I think you know, especially since coming to a platform like TikTok, and you see, you know, you literally see children who who are you know. Uh, proclaiming things and, and making statements and you think you aren't even old enough to have studied enough um, to be making these claims. And again, I'm not knocking the youth. I'm just, you can see the, you can see the juvenile responses. You can see the circular reasoning, um, you know, and again, I'm just going to use the Trinity as an example and, and you'd agree with me. The egg is not a good example of the triune God, <laughs> You know, when people go, what is the Trinity? And you go, well, it's like an egg. No, it's not like an egg. It's, it's nothing like an egg. <laughs> so, you know, that's just what I've noticed myself. So I, I want to share one thing real quick because it reminded me of the conversation I had with um, Ortho Mando. He's in the box. I, wanted, I, never, I don't think I've ever actually told Nick this, but I'd love to tell you exactly how I view the whole Christian church real quick because I love this conversation. And I believe this is what's been missing throughout history. Uh, this ability for us to come together, because what I see when I see the entire Christian church from day one is men trying to understand the infinite God and allowing pride to consume them on who understands salvation. The other stuff really hasn't really been the problem. It's always been about who is saved, who knows how to identify who's saved. And it's always been me being saved and you're not saved. And that's what we've seen throughout history. I'm saved, you're not. I'm saved, you're not. I know you don't. I know you don't. I don't believe that the Protestants, I mean, that the uh, Orthodox are heretics. I don't even believe all Roman Catholics are. Now, when we talk about the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope and the Magisterium, 
Yeah, you guys know my feelings on that because they're the leaders, right? The leader of heretics or the leader of people that are misled are the heretics, right? But as far as Roman Catholic people and the Orthodox, I believe we're all the true church, but we've been exiled just like we are in the past, right? Just like the Jews were exiled at one point and there was Jews here, Jews here, and they all had their different traditions based on their culture because mankind is always influenced by his culture. Mankind is always influenced by his surroundings, and I truly believe that we're all uh, Protestants. Now, that doesn't mean all Christians. Again, I want to make that very clear. But I mean, all branches have truth in them and all branches have what matters. And if you notice, the semantics are the issue here. Once saved, always saved. Well, we we agree that it's, we're saved by the blood of Christ. We, we agree that we're saved by faith. The working it out part isn't to be saved, right? Nick here does not believe he's earning his salvation. Now, granted, we might try and say, well, no, technically you do. And that's what we do. We say we, we try that's and put thoughts into other human beings. No, no, no. If you say it this way, then that means you have to be working it out. I mean, you have to be working, right? People will try to put that in each other. I think that's the biggest problem that we can't just agree on the fact that, yo, Christ saves, man. Like Jesus saves. Shut up, you dumb humans. Like <laughs> Jesus saves. And I just wanted to throw it out there like, I wish more people were willing to have these conversations and be like, yo, I disagree with you on that, bro. But Christ is awesome because I'm a sinner and you're a sinner and we're both probably wrong on something and move past it. So I, I just wanted to, I, I, I encourage everybody to have these conversations. Amen. I, I think too, that there's something to be said because if, if I were going to articulate what work has to do in that, imagine you're encased in a titanium ball and God is telling you, you better pound against that ball to get out. You know, you're never going to do it. Mm -hmm. I have no conception that any little work that I'm going to do is actually going to help me get out of that. Yeah. But God says I better do it. So I'm going to will to do it in order to attempt to be closer to him. Amen. And that's really how we think about it. Is It's a break in communion. You want I mean, to come just back like, into communion with God. It's just like parenthood, though. I mean, my kids, for example... <laughs> They're not going to be able to ever pay the bills. Now, I mean, not at their, at their state right now, right? But we tell them, you got to do this, do this. Hey, you got to provide around here. You got like, as my young men are getting older, I'm giving them instruction to provide. Now, will that mean that they're the actual ones providing? No, I'm going to put the food on the table. I'm paying the mortgage. I'm your father. I take care of you. But you're not just going to lay on the bed all day. And you're not just going to lay there and be lazy all day because I'm telling you, son, you need to make, you need to do this. You need to work. You need to be, you know, be involved. And that's what I love about Ephesians 2, 9. Because everybody reads 2, 8, 9, no, 8 and 9. It's 10, I mean, uh, verse 10. Because it says, you know, uh, his workmanship that he has prepared for us. Yes, there are work. And this is, again, why JD and me get called works-based. Because we don't reject half the Bible like some people do. Paul talks about good works constantly. Not to be saved. I'm talking to the people that are supposed to be in Christ already. Like, yeah. hey, we're in Christ now. Let's serve him and be obedient children. Yeah. I don't for for me always, it's it's just it's just being quiet. And again, I will say it, you know, anyone who hasn't done any church history and they haven't gone and read up more about the Orthodox Church, I'm standing on that wall where I thought the Orthodox Church was a heretical church that 
and this is what you learn from from your happy clappy pro you know your charismatic movements will look at the orthodox and say no they're legalistic and they're all about rules and they're all about works but then when you actually go and do your studies for yourself you know as we always say be like the bereans go search for yourself and then you meet people like nick and you get to listen in to hear what he's got to say and you're like well he actually makes a much better point than i've ever been able to <laughs> so so again it's it's about you know taking the time to to understand the church history for what it is and not for what you know how it's been manipulated by by other movements to look a certain way you know they cast a certain shade on on the orthodox church and clearly as we can see and everybody that has been here so far you know has seen who nick is and what he's about and those who have watched these videos they truly are very edifying and such a blessing i especially love the soap dish one that was phenomenal <laughs> <laughs> and so i mean if, if I you mean, don't go back and watch the video he's responding to because i caught that one first and i was like okay what is happening right now i had to you know backtrack to find out what did I miss to get to the soap dish? Because all I see is him in a brush and a soap dish, and I was cracking up. But uh, yeah, so we are about to disagree because I am about to bring up some things we disagree about. But I do want to <laughs> say one thing that's going to make a bunch of people upset. This one's going to be uh, one to show more agreement. JD, if anyone was to ask me which church does heaven most likely look like, from what I've read in Revelation, the Orthodox. Like I love my Protestant church. Don't get me wrong. But I, I'm not a fan of sandals and uh, uh, a beach tank top and, you know, uh, uh, fog machines. I don't like that, right? Like, that's not all Protestant churches. I know that. And it's not mine yeah. either, right? But yeah. I know that it exists. So I want people to understand something. When we read in scriptures of the golden statues and the, the embellishment upon the walls and frankincense and, and incense and, and the way that we're dressed in heaven, I guarantee you this, when we get to heaven, it's going to look a lot more orthodox than it does Protestant. Just being honest with you there, depending on the Protestant yeah. church though, because there are Protestant churches that do have a respect for liturgy, which again, I'm a liturgy person, right? I have this conversation with my mom all the time as a Catholic, because she's a you know, Catholic and, you know, she talks about Protestants. I'm like, you know, I don't like that. You know, I despise that. Right. I, don't get me wrong. If that's how you worship, I'm also not against people worshiping how their culture worships. So I'm not the guy that says that's heretical. You're going to hell or anything like that. Right. If people want to worship with a little clap and a, you know, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. I love everybody praising Jesus. But me personally, I do like liturgy when it comes to church. Like we should be doing things a little bit more reverent everybody's yeah. different but i did want to point that out that when people try and look at it and think like it's this crazy heretical thing it's like have you read the bible that that's more like <laughs> what it looks like than, than what we're doing here with you know beach balls and stuff but uh yeah all right exactly. here's the part we're gonna i saw someone ask the question in the comments so a while back so i'm gonna bring it up to one of the ones we definitely disagree upon and it's kind of a two-part thing um, because I'm actually going to bring up Mary. Um, I'm going to ask you, what is the difference in your view with Mary as the, from the Catholics? And then when it comes to icons and praying to saints, I want to get on that topic because here we disagree. You and I have went back and forth on this one um, numerous times. So let's go down it because I know people probably are like, okay, I hear what I hear what the Orthodox believe when it comes to this. Um, but what about that one thing that Protestants cannot stand? Most Protestants cannot stand. And that is praying to saints. Uh, icon, uh, icons, 
and you know how you view Mary because I know that you view Mary differently. I don't know if your view of the prayers to saints is different, but I'd love to hear what you have to say about that stuff. So the, the short way in the Marian dogmas is going to be to explain to you that in the Catholic Church, there are four. In the Orthodox Church, there are two. We believe in her perpetual virginity, and we also believe in a sense, in a sense that she was sinless. Now, I'm going to clarify as to why this is the case, because we don't believe in the Immaculate Conception, and we don't dogmatically believe in the Assumption. We're not saying that it didn't happen that way, but we believe it happens differently. And it's not a requirement to be orthodox to believe in her assumption. Now, the big difference in when we talk about sinlessness goes all the way back to our formulation between the Catholics, which are original sin, and the Orthodox, which are ancestral sin. We believe that it's not possible after the fall to be a human being and not have the consequences of sin, meaning the tendency towards sin, the consequences of sin is in death, the natural perversion that that provides. So we don't believe that you bear out the guilt of sin. The only time you start having the guilt of sin is when you start willing to do sinful things. So you have to be culpable in some sense for that. So in that same way, we say that Mary didn't sin of her own fruition, meaning she didn't will to sin. But that was because of the Holy Spirit coming down and lording over her. But it wasn't because she had an immaculate conception and just was never capable of sin in the first place and bared no part in ancestral sin. She had to have ancestral sin, in our opinion, because otherwise she wouldn't be human. She would be something else because a exactly. human born without that ancestral sin wouldn't have a relation to us. So we would say we couldn't look up to her as a hero of the church without her having that have like a possibility and still all glory to God, because we believe it's the Holy spirit lording over her just as, as at times Moses and Abraham in the old Testament are stopped from sinning that that was a cause of God. That wasn't just some greatness on her own. We're not contributing that work to her. Mm. Again, if good happens, it's because God causes it. When it comes to prayer to the saints, we believe almost exactly the Catholic articulation as far as that's that's a practice that we have. But we would never go so far with Mary or anybody else to call them the, the mediatrix or the mediator, because mm -hmm. we believe that there's a, a vast distinction between a mediator and an intercessor. An intercessor is just someone asking on your behalf, in our opinion. A mediator has real power. That's why Christ is the only mediator. He's God. So, so of course, he can come with distinction of power and say, your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. So he's the one creating the bridge on our behalf. Mary couldn't possibly hope to achieve them. The Theotokos, as we call her, the mother of God or the God bearer, depending upon how you want to translate that. I know there's yes. been a lot of confusion recently about mother of God, because just to clarify, we in no way, shape, or form, and if you ever meet Orthodox that claims this, they are not Orthodox. There is no such thing as her being the mother of his divinity. We understand that he is pre-incarnate, but he you was. believe that she's queen of heaven? Yeah, but we would say that in the old archaic sense. Like, she, he's she's the queen of the king, so therefore she's the queen mother. So you go with the typology and, and whatnot that the Catholics go with. Yeah, but I mean, there's not, you won't see nearly as much of the distinction of this whole concept of like her, like really being a, a, a majestic character per se. 
And I is mean the that woman from mm-hmm. Revelation 12 Mary for you guys, or is it Israel? That's I a good believe, question. I believe that that is still Mary. Same thing with a lot of the Psalms. Okay. Wait, However, I, I will tell you right now, out of my own knowledge, that's not a particular road that we strive down because we don't have quite the same collision or emphasis on that particular. Yeah. So, uh, again, like understanding that, that that is a classic relationship put forward in the time and we're kind of anachronistically looking at it now. It's kind of like God calling us friend. If you study Hebrew relationships, you find out that a sponsor and a sponsee the sponsor could call the sponsee a friend, and that wouldn't be, have been considered inappropriate in a Hebrew relationship. But for a sponsee to call the sponsor a friend would have been a problem because it would have indicated some lack of respect. So these are just really old idiomatic statements that were in the times of Scripture, especially Old Testament and New, that were significant, but that we don't understand as much now because they just don't translate well anymore. So when we say that Mary is the queen mother or the queen of heaven. We literally mean that she's been blessed among all generations, that she's held up to a high position because of her nature and what she did with Christ and what God has bestowed on her, not because she somehow exalted herself to that level. Okay. Um, Interesting. So we could do Mary for a while. So I'm thinking that I should just let it go just because also we, the, it, the rest of the show could be Mary. Um, we obviously disagree there. I wanted you to, you know, clarify that. And if people, when we get to the Q and a part, people have questions, I'll let it happen. Then maybe we'll have you back one day for a Mary episode, because that's, one of the biggest, <laughs> I mean, be honest with you. Mary is, is a stumbling block, right? It, it's become a stumbling block because of the way that Catholics venerate her. And even the fact that you guys still believe in her, I can I can I can imagine there being Protestants who want to go Orthodox because everything else is like I'm I'm cool with that, and then they get to the Mary part, and it's like ah. Yeah. So um, instead of me wanting to go down that road, and then it becoming you know uh, more, and sure. we being on that for an hour because <laughs> I want to right now, I do. Let's. Let me digress and go more on to the saint prayer, right? So prayers to saints and Mary, because that still involves Mary. We, we, as far as Mary's role goes, we'll agree to disagree there. Sure. But as far as the um, praying to them, um, what what do you guys believe when it comes to that? What exactly is happening when you pray to them? And, and what exactly do you guys believe? So we believe that veneration or honoring someone is different than worshiping them. And I mean, the same way that like, you would have King David, he would have been bowed to in his day. In fact, there's scriptures that show that this is the case. But we don't think that that meant that they recognized him as God in any way, shape or form, and that there's a huge distinction between those two things. So when we we say we venerate the saints, we're honoring their lives because we believe that they reflected and imitated Christ. The second thing is, is when we say we pray to them, we believe that communication form is not in the same fashion of a worship type thing it can be don't get me wrong Mm. it can be but we would say that we're communicating or appealing with them to actually intercess on our behalf because we of course i'm sure everyone's heard this a million times the james thing that goes back to the prayers of a righteous man availeth much and we Mm. also believe that the corporeal body the body of christ includes both those saints that are the saints triumphant in heaven 
meaning they made it to be with God, and the saints militant here on earth. So we're one body. We don't lose linkage because of the separation of, of what we would call death. Do you guys My believe grand. in uh, dulia and hyperdulia like the Catholic Church does? We have those distinctions, yeah. Okay. Um, I realized uh, uh, I actually know the route we need to take this conversation because, see, I see the comments – and, and a lot of things that we've been talking about since I told you, since I said we're about to start disagreeing, we got into Marian saints. I keep seeing questions about where in the scriptures. So maybe we should go there. So Orthodox does not agree with sola scriptura, which is what we believe uh, as Protestants, or at least the majority of Protestants claim to. I would argue that not a lot of Protestants even act like they believe it. They might say it, but they don't. Um, and not only do you not agree with Sola Scriptura? You also have a much larger canon than both us and the Roman Catholics. What, 77? Mm -hmm. Oh, I got it on the first guess. So maybe we should go to that. Maybe we should go to the, the canon and Sola Scriptura. Now, I do know that you agree with what Scripture is to us as far as it is the word directly from God. God breathed, meaning it is if you read those words, it is God speaking. Um, it is living. It is sharper than, you know, two-edged swords. Same thing, I mean, uh, as Hebrews describes it. Theanostas. Theanostas, 100%. Logos, Lagos. <laughs> <laughs> um, inside joke there, guys. But let's actually discuss this. This is probably because when we talk about the differences, right, we've got to go back to, you know, because everybody's asking where in scriptures. And I was about to pop in and be like, well, they're not going to go off scriptures on everything because there's some things that you guys hold to based on tradition and then mm. you know um this is where we run into the big issue between catholics and protestants uh, you know so uh i guess first let's ask uh, uh mainly your view on sola scriptura um i'm sure you know how we define it because there's misrepresentations of it and i'm sure you've heard me define it enough times to where i i can trust you probably know exactly what we mean when we say sola scriptura um what your opinion on that is from an orthodox point of view so I, I think precisely where we're going to get into a lot of trouble is, is that like we view the church as the equal interpreter to the scriptures. And we believe that infallible interpretations come through the church. So yeah. they're they're like guardrails. They operate one on the other side. So you'll see many times throughout church history where, for example, even in the striking down of Arius or Nestorius or any other number of heretics, Marcion, yada, 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 that it, essentially scripture is quoted as an authority because within within the church of course it's recognized as an authority there's a reason that it's canonized where we run into trouble is is the and this is like if you guys want to answer this question that's fine i'm not trying to catch anybody unprepared again we're not practicing polemics but where we yeah. run into to trouble is the the epistemological end which literally yeah. what i'm talking about is how do you establish the canon of scripture? And again, I understand that we may disagree about those things, but for the Orthodox, we're going to say, well, God's word comes down in the form of the commandments to the prophets. And from there, the prophets continue to carry this out and they oversee God's word throughout. And then comes Christ because that entire bit of prophecy, the Old Testament, is all an archetype for the coming of Christ to point to who Christ was so that we could recognize him. And then once Christ comes, obviously he's God. He has the ability to elect his own structure. And he also follows in line with his own structure by being submissive to the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's why he has St. John the Baptist baptize him, 
most people yeah. don't recognize that that baptism is actually significant in some ways. And it's not the same type of baptism, by the way, that he was performing for us in his name. Yeah. And so you have that. And then after that, he establishes his, his apostles to oversee the scriptures and eventually to canonize them. And the way that they do this is, again, through the ecumenical councils. And we believe that you see the archetype for that in Acts 15, when you see the apostles get together. And at the end of it, when they write their letter, they say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. That's confirming their authority that they worked with God, that God worked mm -hmm. for them mm -hmm. in order mm -hmm. to achieve that end. And so we Amen. believe that's how the scriptures came to be canon. Amen. The, the tricky part is, is how you say that canon authorizes itself. That's where we get into trouble. I think that uh, the view of canon is the problem here because I, I would I would not dis so as a Protestant to answer your question and it's not a gotcha moment I'm, I'm I'm actually okay with this question because I believe that the question is actually harder for you to answer. You see, I can view canon and say that it is God revealed that God has always revealed His scriptures. Like it, scripture doesn't need man; scripture will always be revealed from day one, and that's why Christ yeah. was able to keep people um, accountable to it without a magisterium. Right? There was no magisterium, and the Hebrews argued over canon just as well. But Christ still held people accountable by His word because His word is revealed. So I would believe that the word of God is going to be revealed no matter what, and I can trust that rather than. If I have to trust my authority of the church, because then I have to flip the question on you, who gives who gave which ecumenical council the authority? Because, as you know, the canon changes a lot. Uh, now, the 27 doesn't really mm, most of the 27 doesn't really change. Revelation, <laughs> Revelation. And, you know, there's a couple issues in there, but there's there's certain books that we don't have a lot of issues with. And then there's the books like that get popped in and out. We got Esther and things like all over the place. But at the end of the day, I mean, I can show you, as you know, all throughout church history. And normally this is more fine tuned. This argument of mine is more fine tuned for the Catholics because they don't have a dogmatized claim on, on the canon until 1540 at the Council of Florence, I believe it is. Or maybe it's Trent. It's either Florence or Trent where they actually dogmatize the canon. And prior to that, I mean, Pope Gregory the Great, denies the uh, Deuterocanonical books. Jerome denies the Deuterocanonical books. Like So throughout their course of history, when they try and make this claim, like how would you have the canon if not for us? And the question mm -hmm. I always throw back is, well, if you need a dogmatized canon for it to be valid, then you don't have one until the 1500s because it was getting flip-flopped, flip-flopped all the time. Yeah. The same thing I would say to the Orthodox is um, if you're not going to rely on the fact that it is God revealed and therefore the canon is, is the canon by God's revelation, when when did the authority become the authority to actually give you the canon? Hmm. It's an interesting way that you posit that question, because arguably, I think that we would both say that God is always working in all of those things. I mean, even ecumenical councils for that to put the canon together. The fact that the scriptures are preserved from so many different fragmentations and manuscripts over time. And then even when the apostles and their successors are running around trying to compile them, the fact that they brought them together, given how hated Christians were before the Edict of Milan, it's insane that they ever managed to compile the canon in in general. I think you could definitely yeah. say that God is escorting that throughout. I think the difficulty where we run into, though, is, is if you go back before we're, we're talking about this into the Old Testament, is if you didn't sit in one of the seats of the prophets and share their lineage back in the day, and you tried to make a declaration about the Torah, 
they would have laughed at you. Yeah. And so there's always been a place where there's been a seat filled for the interpretation or the giving of these things. And I don't think that that's representative necessarily. And, and we're going to, we're going to disagree on this. I'm just trying to flush out what I actually think, but yeah. I don't think you're ever really going to see a time even in Christ where he doesn't deliberately work through men. Oh, and I believe that he works through men, but I believe the apostles had that authority. My issue is when churches that are after the apostles try to claim their authority, because that's the issue. Catholics try to claim their authority. You guys claim their authority. And then it's this battle over who has that apostolic authority. Well, mm -hmm. and I think that that's an important question, because when we're getting down into who has the authority, that's going to be a big deal, because ultimately, if you're looking at it, Canon in and of itself, as you brought up, was not solidified in many ways. In fact, there's oftentimes when, you know, like I would love for there just to be like the 27 book canon because it seems fairly apparent. Right. But, you yeah. know, historically, that's not the case. Like yeah. we would say that solidly. I think all of us could agree on that. In fact, the contested canon is in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. That's we, the only thing that we as between in case anybody listening is not aware of this right now, as it stands in the majority religions, the books that we argue about are all Old Testament. Like right now where we stand, where Protestants are today and where Catholics are and Orthodox are today, we all agree on the 27, on the four Gospels, all the epistles, and then we're talking about Acts of the Apostles and Revelation. Like we agree yeah. on that. That hasn't always been the case, but right now yeah. we do. I think, you know, just to just to just to correct me if I'm wrong here, Nick, but with the with the Orthodox Church, I think it's more a question, not so much of the canon um, itself, but that the the modern day church has rebelled against the anachronistic morality and traditions of the early church. Well, and I, and yeah, I was actually going to kind of touch on that, because as you see what I'm going to lovingly call the evolution of canon. And I say this because it kind of gives this idea that it's being projected forward and growing. Do I actually believe that that's the case in the case of God? No, God doesn't change. I'm just saying as it went through time for us, it kind of appears that way. I don't think that anything that the councils ever did or in any affirmation of canon that anyone wants to claim that they weren't attempting to say, well, this is God's word and it's an affirmation. They weren't trying to group new things together, a lot new innovations or bring new ideas. And so when we talk about this, it's kind of an evolution. So the real question becomes, what did Christ teach? What did the apostles teach in turn? And then based on that, what can we consider canon and how do we consider that authoritatively? The orthodox answer to that is going to be through the ecumenical councils, because we believe that the Holy Spirit moved infallibly through them. That's how we're going to say the canon is compiled. Now, was that done all at once? No, but I don't think that's by accident either, because again, like even if you look at the Old Testament books that we both agree on, there is an evolution that continues to happen, if you will. Again, keeping in mind that I don't mean that in the literal sense, mm. but there's a continuation of new things that come along that are being revealed to humanity in, in fresh time. It's not yeah. something that happens just boom, we had the entire Torah or anything of the like. Yeah, no, see, that's what that's one thing I do respect about the Orthodox view on this because I've never actually had an Orthodox person say to me, 
we, it's our, it's, it's an Orthodox book, right? The Bible is an, you know, I, I'm going to replace the word Catholic with some of the things I've heard from the Roman Catholic church. This is a Catholic book. This is an Orthodox book. We gave you that book. It's our book. Like this, this idea, like that we created it, right? No, no, no. I, mm-hmm. From what I've seen, Orthodox agree here that this is God's word revealed by God and man was allowed to compile it through the Holy Spirit by the work of God so that his word would be revealed, right? Uh, that that whole idea where some, and, and most respectable Catholic apologists would never say such things. It's really the ignorant ones that exist on TikTok and Facebook that say these things like it's a Catholic book and, and it's our book and it's, we made the book. And it's like, yeah, you didn't make it. Well, I mean, if, we, if we're going to be honest about it, just on a personal level, I would never say that just simply for the fact I wouldn't want to discourage you from reading it because <laughs> I, I don't care if you only got 66 of them being uh, uh, in, in relationship with those scriptures is going to vastly change how you think about things, period. Amen. And yeah. while I might disagree Amen. about the interpretations of those scriptures and everything like that, it at least creates a fertile bed for us to talk, right? Because all of us right now, the more that we study the scripture, the more we can talk about these things and the more we can get down into, well, what does this mean to you? Or how do you interpret this and everything like that and see what actually beds down in those situations? Because again, the real question ultimately is always going to go back to, and like you said, JD, I love that point. Hey, you guys are changing things. There's a t-shirt that I have. <laughs> it's in the wash right now, otherwise I could grab it. But there's a t-shirt that I have that says, how many Orthodox does it take to change a light bulb? And at the bottom of it, it just says change question mark. We don't want to do that. So yeah. while many people see innovations and everything like that, that in essence is what Orthodoxy is trying to do, do is preserve the faith of the apostles. Now I get we may disagree on what that is, but that honestly is our sincere goal is, is we just don't want to have anything changed from the way that it was. Because if God delivered it to us, it was good enough. That's essentially yeah. the statement. See, Amen. I agree with that. And I believe that the Reformation and the Reformed uh, uh, motto actually goes in line with that. But it, it goes a little different. It's Semper Reformanda, which means always reforming, which is saying we also don't want it to change. But however, as culture changes, we need to make sure that we're always reforming, that we stay to what the word is. Right. Yeah. Because at the same time, as much as it it sounds great to stay the same, you know, it's not going to around it. And if you don't fight back against that, then you're going to allow things to slip in and change. So that's why. So, you know, as you know, the reason I'm solo scriptor is because you have to have something to keep man in check. And if the church is ran by men, yes, we believe that the Holy Spirit can work through men. But as humans, and since the day of Paul and all of them, you know, they admitted it. There are wolves that will creep in unnoticed, right? So if Paul and them are telling you they walked with Christ, they knew him. Like, well, mm. Paul didn't walk with him, but he knew Jesus just as well as the apostles did. If people who knew Jesus are warning you like, yo, people will creep in that you won't notice, then yeah. us 2,000 years later definitely might not notice. So what's the yeah. one thing I can trust that will always be the test? The word of God. Amen. Amen. And I mean, this is ultimately what we see with 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 guys like not every Orthodox person or Orthodox church member I've spoken to has been as forthcoming to just answer questions as as Nick has. And again, like I say, I've 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 been challenged by Nick to look into more of what the Orthodox church is 
And, and when we go back and when we see certain arguments against the Orthodox Church, um, and I mean this with all due respect, it's, it's from an ignorant place. People make claims about the Orthodox Church not knowing the claims they're making. So again, um, this is why you know we, we've gone backwards and forwards on this on TikTok, and I've said to people again and again, don't just assume um, and don't come with presuppositions about what he believes. Ask him what he believes, because ultimately once you take a blanket and you and you whip it over everyone um and you start making those blanket statements ultimately this is where where feathers get rustled up and and people feel the need to attack or clap back because what you've made the claim you've made doesn't app doesn't represent my belief accurately and and this is what we see on tiktok you see a lot of people making videos about other people telling you what they believe and and guys go oh wow oh okay uh, you know, that's cool. Now I know. But in, in reality, that's not what the Orthodox Church believes at all. So, again, it's uh, it's awesome to have, have you know, this conversation with Nick. And I definitely want to have Nick's uh, take on the, on the Trinity just purely because of the heresy of modalism that's going on on TikTok at the moment. If you could just, if you could just, if you wouldn't mind, Nick, just give us a, a breakdown of the triune God in 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 the most simplest form, if you can. Yeah, good luck on simple. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Mike was just alluding to this earlier. The biggest problem is, is like, I'll tell you right off the bat, the problem with analogies is, is like, it's an attempt to help you to understand. But in doing that, we bring God to man's level. And that's why it becomes heresy is it's just, it's always going to have some form of imperfection in the analogy because you can't make an analogy to manifest God. And in that same fashion, it's a good thing that we can't because he wouldn't be God if we could. Exactly. So when we say things like, like one of my favorite analogies, which is again, imperfect is, is that like, if you think about the sun as the origination for heat and light, then those things are coming off of the sun and their natural consequences to the sun being existent but they don't necessarily, it's not a deliberate creation or procession. It's just a consequence of that thing being a, in existence. I think that that's the closest analogy I've ever heard. Could that be modalism? Yeah, in a sense, it really could be. And we could go down that road, but I'm just saying that the important part, and, and JD, you were touching on it earlier and you used the term usia, which I love. Uh, and then you have usia and hypostasis. So there's three persons, one usia, one essence. And the big deal with that is, is they each have distinct traits, but they're all God. And so there's a functional form and there's the substance or the essence of the Trinity. And understanding the way that those two things work is extremely important in understanding the Trinity. Because like, for example, Roman Catholics will say that the Son proceeding, or I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit proceeding through the Son is an indication of the filioque. Well, the Orthodox will say, no, that doesn't mean that. What it means is, is that in function, of course, Christ processes the Holy Spirit. You can see that in scripture. Yeah. He's the one that brings him forward. That's what Pentecost is. And so that's a functional side of things. But does that mean that all of a sudden the father is not the originator? It's the father and the son together? No, because then that abuses the Holy Spirit. Because we would say anything that's part of the essence, any of the characters that are given to the essence have to be common to all three because that's what makes them God. So then Amen. the reason that we don't believe in the filioque is because 
that gives a characteristic to the father and the son that isn't true of the Holy Spirit. It does abuse exactly. to the Holy Spirit is what we say. Amen. And so understanding functionality versus the essence. Well, is, is Christ lower than the father in function? Absolutely. He, he tells you that in Philippians, He's, he says that he came as a servant. So he does that deliberately. But does that mean in substance, in essence, that he's less than it? No, yeah, no, amen. he's God. Exactly. God. And so those are some of the easiest equations to say, hey, this is w- what we think of as the Trinity. But you got to remember, and like Mike said, it'll frustrate some people. But Orthodox, when pushed on these things, we will always tell you those are mysteries. You're not meant to know. If God wanted yeah. to know you to know, he would tell you. You exactly. would find out. Exactly. Amen. And Amen. I gotta say, I, I I do agree with the Orthodox on that, that the Son and the Spirit proceed from the Father. Um, because scripture makes it clear. I mean, scripture God, makes it clear that the Father is the 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 the, the source of it all. The son says, I've come from the father. The father sent me, right? No one sends mm-hmm. the father. Mm-hmm. The father sends. And the son yeah. sends the spirit with the father, right? So yeah. uh, if this father sends the son and then the father and the son send the spirit, all comes from the father, right? The father yeah. is. I mean, uh, so you know, we get it like the father unbegotten, the son begotten, and the spirit spirited or spirated. We, we, that's what we see throughout scripture. And, and again, it's uh, the understanding. So thanks for that, Nick, uh, beautifully put. But we, we agree. We agree 100% on that. And I think this is um, with analogies like steam, ice, and water, and, and an egg. Yeah, I'm going to stick with mine. Brain, <laughs> mouth, and blood. Because at the end of the day, the father is the mind, right? And the mind is what you are. Like the mind is the main, the main functioning. And then my voice, my word is me. But it, but it still obeys my mind. And the blood yeah. is what gets the connection between the two. And, and when we become part of his body. Yeah. Yes. And I'm still one being as a whole. So I yeah. I like to say basically like that because the father, like Jesus, if you replace, I, I do this sometimes. If you replace what Jesus is saying about him and the father with the mind and the mouth, it works the same way. The mouth cannot do anything on its own unless the mind tells it. The mouth only does what the mind tells it, right? Same, same function. And Jesus is the word. The father is the mind. And then what's the connection between the blood, the Holy Spirit. And then we get that blood when we join the body. So we're connected as well through the same veins and the same bloodline, which connects us to the son, which connects us to the father and and is three in one. So that's the way I'm going to stick with my analogy. um, (laughs) It's a good analogy. It's a good analogy, but again, it's still finite. It's still human. 100%. It's still finite. 100%. So let's roll into the Q and a with our last half hour. Um, just because we could keep going and maybe we have to do this again because I've enjoyed this. Absolutely. It's just been a dialogue of just going back and forth and discussing things. But people have been begging to ask you questions, Nick. Okay. Just real quick though, JD, sometime offline we'll have to talk about this on Discord or something. But there's yeah. uh, there's uh, one of uh, my friends who, who fell asleep in the Lord. Um, he did studies just on Trinitarian relationships throughout some of his papers are amazing because he shows that the yes. Trinity re- is reflected throughout all of nature. You can see Amen. it in everything. Like for Amen. example, just one real quick one, gift giving. There has to be a giver, a receiver, and there has to be a gift. There's a Trinity in gift giving. And so wow. you see all these things that like a show, show a yape that show wow. godly love always have this Trinitarian essence. To Amen, them. Man. I mean, 
Wow. <laughs> All right. One that, that's like the thing I recently shared because I, I ran across someone that explained how love requires three. Perfect love because it requires a target of the love, someone to give your love to, and then someone for to, to have that love shared with. So like the father loves the son who shares with the spirit that love. And then it, it, uh, the way it was explained is the same way that perfect love, same thing. I love my wife and then we do it in front of others to form the bond, right? So that others see that love. And it's always a triangular thing. And there's threes all throughout the Bible. People don't realize things come in three all the time in the Bible. Three appeared to Abraham. Okay, I digress. The first question I want to ask you is um, I saw, and everybody start posting your questions now, but I saw one question that I thought was really interesting. Guys, by the way, I'm going to hit the more interesting Q&A first. And then if a bunch come through, uh, Cam really wants to know your thoughts on origin. <laughs> so historically speaking, origin was a great defender of little old orthodox Christianity in the very beginning. And I mean, so he's revered in some fashions for some of the things he did, especially against like Gnostic heresies, heresies and things like that. However, that said, Origin is in a disgraced position within the church and within a church tradition. There's a concept that he did repent at the end of his life, but we would not name him as a saint because of the position that he held to our knowledge. So we actually have a, a great many issues with origin. Sorry, my son came downstairs. He must have had a tough night. Um, I see a question. I'm going to throw it on screen and let you answer it, and then I'm going to take care of him. If unbroken succession is true, why aren't the dead raised, the sick healed, and demons cast out? So uh, the, these are all things that we would claim. We're not cessationists, so these are all things that we would claim would happen. However, the orthodox belief around miracles is that if you receive something like that, it's not something that's supposed to be given out. And knowledge of is supposed to be shared with just everyone. Because at the same time, that was to affect a very, very, very specific situation. So we keep that stuff close to the chest. But there are still relics and in church tradition, there's still the concept that healings happen. You can see this reflected in in scripture with Elijah's bones or St. Paul's handkerchiefs. You see that these things had capability and we believe in the sacredness of things that were touched by someone who is possessing holiness through God. Amen. Well, you've got another one. Yeah, that says, I am a former Orthodox. I have always struggled with the issue of Mary's sinless nature. Why, from the Orthodox perspective, should we rely on Mary as an intercessory when that is the role of Christ? I think the, the difficulty is always going to be, and, and I tried to make this apparent right at the, at the beginning, um, Christ is an intercessor, if you want to call him that. However, he holds a position that's much higher than that. He's a he's a mediator and he's the mediator. And there's a difference between those two things. And in the orthodox formulation of things, I'm just giving you the answer straight out. Um, you can become so marred with sin. You see James reject people on this end that your prayers aren't heard because your heart is in a position that you don't actually want that situation to occur. Whereas we believe that the inter the people that intercess for us may pray better than us. And that includes the people on earth, by the way. Amen. Amen. We've got another one here from Carissa. Um, we did touch on it, but I'm sure Nick wouldn't mind going into it again. She asked, what is the Orthodox view on one saved, always saved? And I do apologize if this was touched on in the podcast. So again, so, just clarity. So 
short version of this is we don't believe in eternal security. However, that doesn't mean that you waver back and forth based on every single sin that you've ever committed. And we're not counting them. If true, the shortest way, as, as Mike likes to say, true faith will truly save, you know, it's, it's the matter of like, if you're able to walk that path of salvation. So we believe that it's a lifelong process. Protestants believe that it happens now. Amen. Um, let's see if anybody else has any questions. And if not, Well, again, what, uh, while, we, while you're looking for questions, Nick, what is your TikTok username? It is St. Nicholas, right? Mm-hmm. Is that go. accurate? What's on screen? Saint, yeah, well, I, I think it's all one for TikTok. I could double check, but. Okay. okay, so if you guys are not following Nick and you've got more questions, I know we've had, we've had some awesome response tonight. Uh, St. Nick Nicholas on um, TikTok and go give his videos a follow. Go, go give it a like. So here's the question. Um, so if Orthodox pray to the saints in heaven, why not pray to Noah, Moses, David, Paul, or any of the 12 apostles or anyone in the Bible in general? Um, I, I don't know uh, what, what information you got, but we do. <laughs> all, 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 all of those are fair game for us. In fact, um, the, the big, uh, in fact, I can show you. Oh, oh, he's taking us with him on a journey. <laughs> So this icon right here is the icon that's in the uh, narthex or the entryway. I was trying to think about how to say this, but this is actually St. Abraham, and this is the hospitality to the three angels. That's what's being depicted there. So those are all people that we venerate. So there are people with the icons of Noah and Moses and Abraham, all, all of those, David, those are all people that we honor. So um, before I let Cam's question come up, I was going to uh, uh, answer Kodiak's question for, for Nick. The biggest difference is Sola Scriptura, I think. I think that would be the biggest difference. Um, because even before you get to soteriology, you can't have an art. Like I, tell, like I tell people about Catholicism all the time. If we can't agree on where the authority is, then we can't discuss anything. Because I can be like, here's what scripture says. And then he can say, well, here's what our tradition is, right? And then it's going to be the, ba the bouncing on that. So I would say that Sola Scriptura is going to be the biggest difference. Even though there's probably others that we can consider bigger, we can't discuss them until we get through that authority issue of scripture versus tradition. I 1,000% would agree with that. I mean, and that's the main part about having these conversations is you need to figure out, and, and me and Mike have been doing a lot of this work together and just figuring out where the semantic differences are and everything like that. But if you don't get past the hostilities, you're never going to be able to get there. Like, yeah, exactly. Figuring out I the know. core of the disagreement. At least we know where each other stands and everything like that. And I can respect that position. Nah, here's Cam wanted to follow up. So, Origin well, before you answer this question, I've got to bounce. I love you both. I love you both very much. I've got to, I've got to go get my son ready for school and make my wife's lunch. Yeah, I forgot we started late, so technically you're coming up at that time now. All right, yeah, buddy, yeah. we still. So I love you guys very much. Stuff, Thanks again, Nick. This was Thanks, awesome. We'll definitely do it again, man. I love you yep. all. God bless you. Grace and peace. Yeah, I'll talk to you uh, off air. So uh, thanks, Nick. One more question. Origin was also known for his three levels of interpretation, allegorically being the most important one. Would you say that's the way Orthodox interprets the scriptures? 
Would, would I say that we utilize the three levels? Yes, we absolutely believe those exist. However, just like Origin was interpreting them, we would have to have context and credence in order to do that. So he was basing off of what he knew out of the apostles as to whether or not we were going to interpret those things as like, say, for example, we might have a difference in a lot of people don't believe that the rich man and Lazarus is a story. We believe that, that that's an accurate depiction of a narrative. We do not believe that that's a parable. So that would be an example. Okay. Now I have a question since there's no comments. Uh, this is one I ask Catholics sometimes. Um, so we know that Stephen was martyred in the Acts of the Apostles very early in the in the in the days of of, of the apostles. Um, and we know that many of the letters were written farther after that. For example, I mean, uh, Revelation is in what like 90 AD, we believe. So and, and, and also, we also know that there's other apostles that have died before some of the epistles are written. But I'm going to use Stephen because he is he is identified as being dead in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Even though we, you and I know Peter are, is dead prior to John's revelation and things like that. Heck, even before, I think, John's gospel, because that's why John's able to allude to the fact that Christ was saying this is how he'll die. I believe Peter's already dead when John's gospel is written. Right. But... If we know that that Stephen is dead and an early tradition is supposedly praying to the saints, why do we never see or why do you believe uh, we never see Paul or any of the epistle writers referencing um, to pray to, you know, Stephen and ask him to intercede on behalf of us? Because we see prayers being requested in the scriptures. Paul often will say, pray for us and what we're doing or pray for this person. Paul, Paul says that. So if he alludes to praying for people, and we know Stephen's dead. If a tradition of the church was prayers to the saints, why do you think we never see prayers to the saints in scriptures? See, this is a really interesting question because you're you're the the difficulty is we're going back and forth in between timelines because I think that you could actually reasonably posit those questions over the entire whole of scripture, right? Because it wasn't canonized until almost 500, basically, is the first time you really start getting compact ecumenical decisions on what the canon is. Council of Rome does that <coughs> to, to a pretty good effect, but it's not the whole thing yet. And I think the answer to that is, is a lot of things, just like Trinitarian theology, were solved outside of the scriptures. And this is why we're always going to argue for the church being the interpreter of the scriptures is because there are many things as Paul refers to the tra tradition, both written and spoken, that were already assumed in that situation as things that were going to be taught moving forward because they were already well into practice. And you can see actually in the Merkava tradition of the Jewish of prayers for and to the dead in Sheol. Okay. I think that we definitely could do an episode one day where we just discuss that and like Mary. Um, yeah. where we actually, yeah. instead of having a discussion, start going back and forth because um, there are definitely some questions when it comes to just the statement of the oral tradition. Because I know Thessalonians is where you're going to go to, um, and there's some arguments I'd love to bring up on that. But yeah, yeah. we'll digress again. We only have 14 minutes left before the end of this. Do we have any other questions? Oh, wait, I see. I think I see another question up here. Um, one more question on Mary. Nick, can you help me understand the seemingly Gnostic themes behind Mary's origin in the Proto-Evangelium of James, which is the oldest account of Mary's story? Have you read the Proto-Evangelium of James? I know I have, and mm -hmm. I will say this, though. Um, 
when when I read it, I started saying, man, that sounds a lot like what the Catholics teach as far as, you know, Anne has an angel that tells her that she's going to have this child. And, you know, the only my problem with the Proto-Evangelium of James is the things that are so unscriptural, um, you know, Mary being fed by angels. And it's like they knew this was coming. But yet in the Bible, it's like this doesn't this wasn't expected at all. And then we also have them having giving birth in a cave and not uh um and uh, you know with the shepherd and the sheep and all that stuff and then we also see that the birth is like a flash of light and that's kind of gnostic uh, but yeah i'd love to hear your opinion on the proto-evangelium of james and and i so, guess that. uh i i don't have my copy right now but i just so happen to have this one i'm going to consider these books very similarly on par because like the Proto-Evangelion of James is not a Gnostic text. It didn't get classified that way by any academic scholars. And the reasons being is, is because you can find parts of it right that agree with the scriptures and would be concurrent. And maybe, maybe they might give a little bit more detail. So we're going to draw on those and say, well, that's reasonable. But the problem is, too, is, is just like this book, like you were just bringing up, Mike, there's a ton of stuff in there that's obviously Gnostic. There's a ton of stuff in this book about angelology angelology and the celestial bodies and yep the celestial bodies and in the proto-evangelion of james when like mike was just talking about with the flash of light with the angels coming down is that possible for god to do sure do we have any founding that that's ever taught in the apostolic tradition or even if you want to lay on tradition which we do that those were things that were happening no that's why you just don't see the same emphasis like, for example, there are stories during the Assumption of Mary when she's being taken up into heaven that there was a man who came and tried to verify her perpetual virginity and an angel descended and cut both of his hands off. Did this happen? <laughs> I never heard that one. Maybe. Does it matter, though? Is it dogma that you need to believe? No. So there are lots of depictions in there. But would I purport that as, number one, necessary to the faith and, number two, not just a circumstance under which we can have a lot of fun talking about it, but it's not salvific or not a primary issue in any way, shape or form. Yeah. So I think that you could draw some conclusions and you could say that that might be cool history or maybe it might make a, a, a new, a good movie one day. But, so I like Selena's question here, but I want to rephrase it for her because I think it would be better phrased the way I phrase it. No offense. to Selena, <laughs> but I think it would be better to say, um, because that's kind of like a that's a vague question. I think it would be better phrased this way. Um, are you allowed in the Orthodox to have views that counter the Orthodox view? You know how, for example, with Catholicism, um, you know, it's the magisterium. They have the infallible interpretation and they actually define it that way. It's an infallible interpretation. So if your interpretation differs from that, you're in the wrong and you need to fix that. Right. Are you allowed to have interpretations that vary um, to the Orthodox Church? Um, when it comes to scripture, just like the Catholics, not on any of the dogmatic statements. However, that said, the interpretation of scripture is done what we call from the phronema of the church or the mind of the church. So it has nothing to do with a priest's interpretation. In fact, we lay heavily on the Antinician fathers and the interpretations found at the ecumenical councils. So it's a much higher level, much older version of interpretation that we're using. And then if those continue, again, it's a, it's a continuity issue to be in line with things later on. Like, for example, St. Theophlact wrote just shortly after the schism, 
And he has, I have multiples of his books, which are the explanation on like the gospel of Matthew. Uh, well, actually it's all four. And then he has a book on Ephesians and he has a book on Galatians. Those things also still fall in line. So it's a continuity thing. It's not just one individual. And on that note, um, fathers can be wrong. So you're making me think now, and I don't know if we have enough time, but now I have questions. Um, does your church have an ex cathedra kind of thing? Can you guys make a, in, like who makes the infallible claims? You mentioned ecumenical councils, but as we were talking about off air, you have a lot of different rites or, you know, mm -hmm. in communion, but different rites of the Orthodox church, but they're on their own. Right. So yep. how does a dogmatic claim become infallible? Do those rites then come together for a council or can the Eastern Orthodox make something and then the others will be like, yeah, we, we, we respect it. So the ecumenical councils provide the wide guidelines and a synod could make a decision within those guidelines so they could clarify something as long as it didn't go against the ecumenical councils. But long and short, the Orthodox Church has not made any infallible declarations of dogma besides synodally what we believe goes in line with the ecumenical councils. So again, they're the hierarchical consideration. We haven't made any decisions since the seventh ecumenical council. When was that? Since Nicaea too. I think it was 700 something, but. Uh, so since the schism, before. you guys haven't really. Since, pre since before the schism. I know I'm saying though, since the schism though, there's been nothing. No. Now, so there's there's synods like local jurisdictions will make clarifications, but they're not these overarching declarations. for. Well, the that's respectable church. because that's one thing I can't stand is how do you make dogmatic claims in 1950? Like <laughs> we would we would. So is it is it impossible? Is it impossible to have another council? No. Would it be really, really difficult to have another council? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things that we would require. Yeah, I just that's one of my things that blows my mind that the Catholic Church can add these dogmatic because again, these are you have to believe, and you can add this 1900 years later. And it's like, I guarantee you, not a single person at Nicaea was even thinking about this as a dogmatic thing. Mike, I, I, you know, I'm trying to be good tonight because, you know, I, I'll be in there when we're having our classes and stuff like that, telling people, like, hey, I didn't say this, but. This is an argument that we would use against the Catholics, and it, it's going to hurt a lot more because it's we speak the same lingo in a sense, right? So they're going to hear this one. Oh yeah. So if you if you give this argument, it's it's a much deeper thing. Oh, I, I we've had some talks about some of the stuff that uh, we find in uh, in the in the Vat in in their in their Vatican. Uh, Vatican II especially, oh man. But that's another episode, another day. We are drawing down near the end. Again, guys, you can find him on the Discord server. You can find him on TikTok at St. Nicholas. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, brother. We definitely need to do this again. Um, next up is a Catholic. We will get one on here. As much as you probably think Mike can't have a cordial conversation with one, don't worry, we will. And um, and many other groups. Um, are you going to get the other Mike? No, 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 no. Um, and that's not anything against him, but I, know, um, I, I have uh, I have someone that I've been lining up with that I think will be more of an interesting discussion. Someone that no one's ever seen me talk to. He's got a large following. 
Um, he's got a very large following, actually. I think his following might might be bigger than mine. Uh, but um, yeah, he's a, he he he's someone that I've been talking to off air that we plan on having a conversation with. And again, it'll be just like this. It'll be um, a cordial conversation, discussing things, and just kind of getting getting through the nitty gritty of what we disagree upon and being able to say, okay, we disagree there. Cool. Let's move on. Um, because that's really what matters. Uh, no, not voice of reason. No, I couldn't do it. I could not do it. I'll be honest with you. I, I could not do it. I, I'm not going to say anything else there. No reason to, um, but I could not do that. I, 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 don't, I mm, no. uh, guys, Wednesday, make sure you guys are back. We will be doing the marriage, uh, you know, two husbands and two, fathers discussing what it means to be a father in the body of Christ as a man of God, what it means to be a husband. Um, and those things we'll be definitely discussing that and having a great episode. Um, and then, yeah, just guys, make sure you hit subscribe, hit share, hit like, hit all that stuff, join the discord server, come hang out with us. Um, uh, and yeah, I really don't have anything else to say about that. I will be live on TikTok for a little bit after this. Um, but I'm not going to be up late tonight. And then Nick, I'm going to reach out to you, uh, after this and probably have like a little chat with you afterwards, just because that's what I normally do anyway. And you and me talk private anyway. So that's not anything weird or different, but Appreciate you being here. Any final words you have for the people? Nope. I think that's awesome. Thanks for having me on, Mike. And uh, as always, I appreciate the conversation. We're going to do a lot more of them, I'm sure. Awesome. All right, guys. You guys have a blessed day. As always, God bless and go in peace.